right, well, I hope that video serves as a little reminder uh, as to the series and study that we are in. If you are uh, not familiar with the series or if uh, this is your first time joining us, uh, let me give a little recap. We started the year of 2023 off um, by asking a simple question, which is, what is this book? Um, we spent four weeks looking at the different characteristics of Scripture. What is Scripture? Uh, we talked about how it is true. We can be certain of that truth. We talked about how it's an ultimate authority over not just the lives of Christians, but all people on earth. And um, we then talked about the sufficiency of, or the, nece- the necessity of Scripture, excuse me, um, how it's needed that without it, uh, you can't know salvation is impossible. Um, we then talked about the sufficiency of Scripture. Not only is it needed and you can't find salvation, but it is the only thing from which you can find salvation. And so that kind of four-week study looking at the Bible has kind of set the groundwork for, for really just the way that we ought to live in general, the way that you ought to frame your, your personal life, that you ought to structure your day around reading this book as opposed to trying to fit reading this book into your already busy day. Um, but it's also set the framework and the groundwork for um, the series that we're in now, which is basically just taking the questions that you guys have submitted. Um, we had that little box and those little cards that said, what does the Bible say about? And we encourage you guys to write the questions that you had. Um, but also just answering some additional common questions that Christians have, that non-Christians have, but not answering them based on what I think or what the general cultural consensus is, but, but on what the Bible says, right? Because it's true and it is the authority and it's needed and it's sufficient, right? And so last week we kicked this series off by looking at what does the Bible say about gifts of the Spirit. Um, we talked about a lot of misconceptions um, and what, the, what it means to have uh, spiritual gifts, how that practically plays out in your life. Um, but today we're going to answer a different question. And I believe this question is perhaps the most common question among non-believers about Christianity, as well as among even believers and uncertainties and doubts that they have in their own faith. And the question is this, why do bad things happen to good people? Or some people might phrase it this way, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? So what we're going to look at is what does the Bible say about that? What does the Bible say about that question? We're going to answer it according to this book, not anything else. But before we do, let's pray. And ask that God align our hearts uh, with him as we humbly approach his word together. Lord, we love you. And we thank you. Um, What a fun day to be gathered with uh, so many youth. um, To be together to worship you through song. To um, just spend time in prayer with you and fellowship together. Um, God, I pray that um, as we transition this time where we dive deeply into your word, Lord, that you would... Speak to us. You, you assure us in your word that um, it is living and active and breathing. And so help us feel it this morning. Help us breathe it in. Help it to influence our life in a way that makes us look more like you, that draws us closer to you. And for some in here who don't know you, that gives us knowledge of you worth surrendering our lives for. Um, and so, God, we just submit to that this morning. Pray your will be done as we approach your word. Um, and just come with big expectations for you to move in a powerful way. So in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So the question, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? Or 
or why do bad things happen to good people is kind of a tricky question to answer. Um, It's a really simple answer, actually, but to get there is a little bit tricky. And the reason I say that is because the question is based on a false assumption um, or a common misconception, but a misconception nonetheless. Um, And so what we're going to do is I want to give you the answer right off the bat, um, the answer to that question. I have to wait. We're not going to build to it. I'm going to give you the answer to the question, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? Um, And then we'll kind of backtrack and explain why. And so here's the answer. You ready? God does not allow bad things to happen to good people. Good, bad things do not happen to good people. That's the answer. That's the punchline of the sermon. That's what we're going to be building towards. That's what I hope uh, we end up uh, at the end of this message. Um, and in doing so, I hope you leave feeling two things. One, that you feel confident and certain, not just because a pastor said or because it's just a Christian thing to say, uh, but you genuinely feel comfortable and confident in that biblical truth that God does not allow bad things to happen to good people. Um, And then secondly, that you would feel equipped to answer that question when it's posed to you. Because chances are, if you're like me, you've probably heard people say some variant of that question, right? Like, man, I don't know how you could believe a God that allows cancer. I don't know how you could believe a God that allows this to happen. Or I'll never be a Christian because God took so-and-so from me, right? We hear questions like that. Um, And as Christians, we need to be certain that, that God's not an awful mean God that just does bad things to good people, Um, and we can remove that obstacle or help remove that obstacle for them. So that's what the hope is for today, Um, and it really all boils down to removing those misconceptions, and they're kind of built on two phrases in that question, right? God allows bad things to happen to good people. We're going to talk about bad things, and we're going to talk about good people, and the misconceptions that that question uh, kind of falsely presumes Let's start with the good people question. What does the Bible say about good people? What does the Bible say about good people? First of all, the way Christians talk, um, I think, has made this confusing, right? You've maybe heard Christians say, maybe you've said this, and I'm not, we're not condemning anyone here this morning, but maybe you've said something along the lines of, well, they're not a Christian, but they're a good person. Has anybody heard that phrase used before? Right? Or even a non-Christian maybe talking about Christianity, saying, well, I don't really need the God stuff, um, I'm just, but I, do, I just focus on good things. Right? I do good things. You know, why, would a, why would God send me to hell if I do good things? Right? We, we hear the, the term good used that way, and, and we talk about it often here, how the, the troubling thing is you know, God has given us this book, and this book has certain meanings for certain words that, um, you know, that are obviously significant and important, but at the same time, it's in a language that we use among non-Christians, and so sometimes the words that we hold dear share meaning with common usage in the world today. And so I'm not saying it's you know, a bad thing to say that you know, someone did something good or that you had a taco and the taco tasted good, right? If it doesn't meet this biblical uh, definition, then it's just totally wrong. But there is a difference, right? And so what we want to do is find that difference, um, and I want to start now. I've got kind of three points to help us paint a picture of what a good person is. Let me give a couple of illustrations. Uh, it was actually a story of how I met uh, Pastor Brett. Um, I showed up at Southeastern University in, I was going to say the year, but I don't even remember the year. Um, 
the fall or the spring of 2012. And I was coming mid-semester, so I got assigned a random roommate. Uh, his name was Danny. A lot of you have met him. He's actually been in the church. He's a missionary we support at times. Um, and Danny, being a good roommate, helped introduce me to new friends. And so my first day, he took me up to uh, Pastor Brett uh, and his cousin's dorm room, um, the two of them, and they immediately became two of my closest friends. And that was basically my three best friends all through college uh, that I met on the first day. And when I met Brett and Derek, they were playing uh, FIFA. Now, has anybody here played FIFA? Does anyone know what the game FIFA is? Okay, it's, a, it's just a soccer video game. And I'm not even a huge soccer guy, but a lot of people that I was friends with love soccer, so I naturally played FIFA. And the thing is, I was, in high school, the best at FIFA. Um, inarguably, I was the best among my friend group FIFA. And so when I go up there and they're playing FIFA, the first question they ask me is, hey, you want to play FIFA? And I said, sure. Second question was, are you any good at FIFA? To which I responded, yes, I'm really good at FIFA. And you can probably guess where the story is going. Um, but I proceeded to lose something like five or six to zero. Um, I think part of why I became such good friends with Derek is because he was willing to do that to someone that he just met, right? He wasn't trying to be nice at all. Uh, he just, just totally destroyed me, right? Um, and that moment, literally, it's going to sound crazy, it's a small, insignificant thing, but that literally shaped my perspective um, on how I communicate how good I am at something to somebody else. So literally, since that moment, anytime someone asks me if I'm good at something, I will always, unless I know how good they are, I will always downplay how good I actually am, or how good I actually think I am, right? And so if someone says, hey, are you really good at, at pool, right, shoot at billiards, right? Uh, even if I think I'm really good at it, I'm going to say, ah, oh, nah, you know, I play a little bit, I'm okay, um, right, until I see how good they are, then I'm going to say, you know, then I'll tell them if I'm good or not, right, or I'll just let it be a surprise. Um, and the reason why is because whether or not you're good at something is relative, right? I was really good among my high school friends. I was really bad among my college friends, right? And we can all relate to that. Another story I'll give you. Um, who in here knows of, I'll be impressed, who in here knows of a professional, former professional basketball player named Brian Scalabrini? Anybody know who that is? See a lot of youth hands raising? Okay. Um, he, was a, he was a decently good basketball player. I mean, he played in the NBA, right? So he's obviously good. Uh, but by NBA standards, nobody would have considered him a, a very good player, right? He was, uh, you know, a bench player. Uh, he, you know, it's decent, but probably a little below average even, right? He's a tall uh, a tall redheaded dude to shot threes, not super athletic even. Um, and there, this viral video got posted years after he retired, where he was basically just minding, those, minding his own business, playing games at this like a YMCA gym or a local gym. And this high school hotshot, who was actually a really good high school basketball player, comes and challenges Brian Scalabrini to a one-on-one -on -one basketball game. Um, and Brian Scalabrini proceeds to beat him 11 to 0. Um, and he makes this famous statement afterwards where he says, well, most people don't realize, um, even good basketball players, he says, is that I'm closer to LeBron James, who was the best player at the time of him playing. He's like, I'm closer to LeBron James than you are to me. Right? So even though he's not considered good to LeBron, he's still way better than anybody else. Right? And again, it's because when we call something good, 
it, it carries with it relativity, right? It, it's relative to those we're around and those we're not. And so the same, that's just a logical statement we made, but the Bible kind of helps guide us in uh, what we ought to be relating our goodness to, what we ought to be comparing it to. Because if any of us just thinks about how good we are, I'm sure, not that we've done this, right? Not that you've done this, but we could probably think of someone that we think we're more good than, right? Um, and again, maybe not you guys, but you know, we probably do that sometimes, maybe compare a little bit. Um, but the problem is that's not what the Bible says we ought to be comparing our goodness to. Um, we're not comparing our goodness to one another. Our goodness is not relative to those around us because if it was, some of us would be good, right? And others of us wouldn't be good. And so if it's not to one another, what is it to? What is our goodness relative to? Um, if you trace back the lineage, uh, I'm going to give some verse references here in a moment, but if you think about this, if you just trace back um, the lineage of, say, you know, one person you know, they do more good than you, right? Then you take that person, right? Surely there's one person that does more good than them. Take that person. Surely there's someone that does more good than that person. If you trace that lineage all the way back, it's going to lead you to one place and one place only. The person that created goodness in the first place, right? The one that gave goodness its meaning and definition and significance, right? And what the Bible teaches us that is and shows us in the early chapters of Genesis, particularly chapter one, is that God is the creator of what is good. What does he do? He creates everything. And on each day, what does he say after he makes creation? And God saw that it was good. Right? He called it good. Right? We weren't even breathing yet to, to know that it could be called good. Right? He called it good. And even when he created man, he called it very good. And so our own goodness, any that we might have, all came from his creation and doing. And so the idea, idea of the relativity of goodness all goes back to God, the God of the universe. Consider the following verses. Psalm 100, verse 5. It says, For the Lord is good, and his faithful love endures forever, his faithfulness through all generations. For the Lord is good, and his faithful love endures forever, his faithfulness through all generations. How does it describe God's goodness? That it's through all time, right? Endures forever. Right? That's far more good than the goodness that we have to offer. But it's also good towards all people, through all generations. So he's not just good for one moment or to one person, but for every moment, to all people, right? Because he's a standard of goodness. It's from him that it flows forth. Look at James chapter 1, verse 17. Every good and perfect gift is from above. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights who does not change like shifting shadows. You know, the problem with goodness is that if you ask someone who's not a Christian um, how to define what's good and what's evil, Right? Usually they'll try to give you some like, well, whatever the consensus of the, whatever the you know, societal consensus is, that's the definition of good. That's how we know right from wrong, whatever people kind of agree upon. right? Because if they say there's an objective standard, then it's got to come from somewhere outside of people. And the only thing that, for Christians, that's God, but for non-Christians, that, that can't be anything. And so they'll say it's just consensus. Right? But the problem is that changes over time, Right? Different societies are going to have different standards of goodness. And, and from one generation to another generation, they're going to have different standards of goodness. That's why in our society today, right, politically, uh, globally, 
We see things that were always deemed bad now are being considered good. Right? It's because it changes. But here we see that God doesn't change. Why? Because he's the infinite source. Right? From all time, for all people, never changing. Right? And the reason that's important, that it never changes, is because in order for good to be good, we've got to know that it's always going to be good. and It's not going to change to be something different. Because we're to be fearful that it might change and it couldn't actually be good. And so this goodness that comes from God since the beginning, for all time, uh, to all people, um, never changing, that is the, the goodness that, that, that we must relate to. Right? And so if we're going to call ourselves good, it's not in relation to the person sitting next to you. It's in relation to the God of the universe. The one that created it, defined it, exemplified it, lived it out. Right? And so, so you probably see where this is going, the idea of good people and what the Bible says about good people. Um, but for now, I just want you to know that, that, that when we ask ourselves, what is a good person? We're asking that question in relation to God. Are you good in relation to the God of the universe? And it's a black and white yes or no question. It's no, well, kind of, sort of, in this moment, it's not. No, it's either you are or you are not. And if we continue on, you know, the first point there um, is that good is relative. It's relative to God. The next two points kind of define the way in which God is good. Um, so look at Psalm chapter 37, verse 27 for both those next points. It says, Turn away from evil. Do what is good and settle permanently. Turn away from evil and do what is good. And so it's talking about goodness in, in kind of two ways. The first way is, and it's going to sound simple, right? But good means doing good, right? But it means doing to the, to the infinite degree. That, that good means doing only good, right? The God standard of goodness isn't that you just did one good thing one time, but it's that the only thing that comes forth from you is good, right? Just like we read earlier, that's through all time, for all people, right? Never changing, right? It's good always, right? Again, we, would, we could acknowledge and say, that, like, yeah, we're supposed to do good, right? but do we live up to the standard of only doing good always? I'll ask that question more pointed in a moment, but, but God's standard for goodness means doing good and doing only good. Doing only good always. And the natural, uh, just logical, kind of reciprocal of that is that good means never doing bad. Right? If you're always doing good only, then you're never doing bad ever. I know that's not good grammar, but, but that's what it means. God only does good. God never does bad. Look at the end of or the same verse, Psalm 37, 27. Turn away from evil, right? Not just do what is good, but also turn away from evil. So don't do bad and do good. And God exemplifies both of these to an infinite degree. So even if you're in here and you're thinking, man, I only ever do good things, right? It's a two-part question. It's do you do good things, but do you also avoid and never do bad things? And so that's what we mean when we say good people. When the Bible says good people, is are you good as it relates to a God who does good infinitely to all people in a never-changing way that is only ever good and never, ever bad? In relation to that God, are you good? Are there good people? 
Are you good compared to God? Have you only done good ever? Have you never done bad ever? Now, I would love to just answer that rhetorically, um, but just in case there's somebody in here who's thinking, well, yeah, I'm still good, uh, let me point us again back to what the Bible says about those questions. What does the Bible say about if there are good people in terms of that definition of goodness? Romans 3, 10 through 18. As it is written, and again, couldn't be laid out any more plainly than this. Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They deceive with their tongues. Viper's venom is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet swift to shed blood, ruin, and wretchedness are in their paths, in the path of peace. They have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. I don't know about you, but the Bible could not be any more clear than that. If anything, Paul could have just said, there's no one that does good. Right, but it's almost like he's twisting the knife a little bit. He wants to make sure that we know that we are not good by the Bible's definition of good. Right, so you might be really good based on the people you hang out with, based on your friends, based on your coworkers. You don't curse like they do. You don't party like they do. Right, but as it relates to God, there is no good person. And so going back to our original question, you know, why do bad things happen to good people? The reason already that we can say bad things don't happen to good people is because there are no good people, right? And if there was a good person, bad things wouldn't happen to that person. There's just not. There are no good people. But as if that's not enough, let's, let's make sure we really, really dig in this morning and let's look at the second part of, or second misconception in that question, in that phrase. We talked about the good people. What does the Bible say about bad things, right? Because bad things still happen, right? Maybe you can even get on board with what we just said. Okay, I got it, right? But bad things still happen. Like God still doesn't have to do all the bad things that he does. Why does he do those? Why does he allow them, whether he ordains them or allows them to happen, whatever your view on that might be? Um, well, I've got four different uh, points that I think can be helpful, both for non-Christians and for Christians. First, let me read, let's look at this. Here's the first point. Why, or what does the Bible say about bad things? The Bible says that bad things are just for bad people. It's kind of a confusing way to say that because I don't mean bad things are only for bad people. What I mean is that bad things are just, like justice. Meaning they're deserved. Bad things are deserved for bad people. Meaning if we're all, if none of us are good, that means all of us are bad. And so the bad things that happened are deserved, is what the Bible teaches. Psalm 103, verse 10. It says, He has not dealt with us as our sins deserve or repaid us according to our iniquities. And here's the thing about this point is, with anything else, none of us would question this idea, right? We, we expect justice. We want justice, right? If someone did something bad and justice wasn't had, right, we would be upset about that, right? If a crime was committed and no justice was had, we would be frustrated and upset. We would be, you know, rioting depending on how big the crime was. And, and here's the thing. Let me make this point. It, it increases, that significance of that weight increases on the weight of the crime, right? So for example, um, 
I, I got a speeding ticket when I was 16 years old. It was the only speeding ticket. That's not true. It was one of a couple speeding tickets that I ever got. Um, but it was a speeding ticket that made me very conscious about not speeding. It's a pet peeve of mine, actually, at this point. Um, and when I went, they asked everyone to share how fast did you go, right? Um, and I won't share how fast I was going. But there was one person in there that went three miles an hour over the speed limit, and they got a ticket. Now, how many of you think that's ridiculous? Anybody think that's ridiculous? Okay, who in here thinks they deserve that ticket? Okay, I see one hand, and I'm not sure if it's a serious hand. I think most people would say that, right? Well, they were only going three over, right? But they were still speeding, right? And again, I'm not saying that that's not how it works. I'm just saying that they still were. So, but again, a minor instance. But because it's minor, people aren't going to be like raiding the streets saying, oh, we need justice for that person that, you know, they got the ticket for going three over. I know it's a small, no one cares, right? What about as the offenses get bigger? What about as you talk about some, some awful things, right? Kidnap, murder, stealing, drugs, weapons. What if you start talking about those things and those things all of a sudden start going, people start letting those go? Right? You don't care if they let someone go for going three over, but you let somebody get away with those things, right? People are going to be upset, right? Because why? They deserve justice. They deserve something to have happened. And here's the thing. We already established that we've done something bad. And here's what I want us to know this morning is that the difference between going three over and murder, that, that gap, which may seem like a lot, that gap is nothing compared to the gap of murder and what we've done against God. Our sin against God is infinitely greater than anything we could possibly do here on this earth that has earthly ramifications. Right? And the reason is because anything we do on this earth is a physical crime. It deserves a physical punishment. Right? But we've sinned against an eternal God, therefore it deserves an eternal punishment. Right? And so the, the need for, for justice against us is immense. And here's the thing. So for, for non-Christians asking the question, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? One, you're not good. Right? And there's probably a softer way to say that if you're having this conversation with somebody else. I would encourage asking them questions like we just walked through. What do you mean by good? In relation to what? What is your standard of goodness? Where does it come from? Mine comes from Scripture. Right? Those are questions to help. But, but one, they're not good. And two, given that we've established we're not good, that means we deserve punishment, which means that anything bad that does happen to us, anything at all on this earth, we can't say, man, I didn't deserve that. Regardless of what it is, think of the worst thing you could possibly think of happening. If that happens to you, even if God ordained it and orchestrated it, right, that thing pales in comparison to the eternal punishment that awaits, right? So it is warranted. It is deserved, right? And here's the thing. That's, that might sound harsh, and ultimately, it's not, it's not even said as harshly as the reality, because the reality is, is any bad thing that happens here on earth is just foreshadowing of an even worse punishment that comes for the crimes we've committed against God. And so when we say bad things, it's like we are guilty. And so how can we try to argue our way out of anything that we've done. It's warranted. It's deserved. And maybe you're here thinking, well, what about if you're already following Jesus, right? I'm a Christian. I've already been covered by the blood of Jesus. And that's the amazing thing of the gospel is that we haven't gotten to that point yet. And looking at that first point, but 
Given our guilt, God sent Jesus to save us from our sins and cover over our transgressions and essentially paying our penalty for us so that we don't have to pay the eternal punishment right, any longer. The eternal punishment any longer. And so for Christians, maybe you're here thinking, well, I still struggle with that. I know Jesus and bad things still happen. Why is that the case? That leads to really kind of our next three points. Why bad things might happen to someone who's already been saved and covered by the blood of Jesus. The first of those things is this. Bad things offer a reminder of what we've been saved from. If you remember last week, we were talking about the gifts of the Spirit. We talked about how one of the things that they are is they're a glimpse of what's to come, right? Because they're an empowerment of the Holy Spirit that allow us to do things that we're not able, right? And so we get to see things like healing, and we get to see things like supernatural teaching, and all, all sorts of different giftings, right? Gifts of help, whatever the gift might be. It allows us to do something we couldn't do on our own, and so it gives us a glimpse into what's to come, Right? Because God is working and moving in us in a way that's in part now, but will one day be in full. Right? And the same thing can be said for the bad things that happen. Right? And so when we experience bad things, one of the things that we can allow to encourage us is it is a, is a reminder. It is a reminder of what we've been saved from. And so when we go through bad things and you experience other things, which all people will, as Christians we get to know that this is only a glimpse of what's to come for non-believers, but it's also only a glimpse of what we've been saved from. Right? And so who are we? What that should mean for the practical implication for that for our life is if we kind of let that play out in our head and we think of bad things happening in our life and we think about, man, this is nothing compared to what awaits those who don't know or what would have awaited me had I not been saved by the grace of Jesus that should play out in a way that makes us not not, not not care about that hard thing, but ultimately be joyous even in the midst of that hard thing, right? Because whatever it is, right, we've been saved from something so much greater. And anytime we go through something hard, it serves as a reminder of that reality and burdens our heart for how we should be living for those who haven't been saved from that reality. Right, so for Christians, the first thing we see is bad things serve as a reminder of what we've been saved from. And then secondly, bad things are also used, Scripture teaches us, for personal refining. For personal refining. Look at James chapter 1, verses 2-4. through It's been a life verse for me for a long time. Consider it a great joy, or consider it a pure or total joy, or complete joy. My brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, or various difficulties, notice it says, when, right, not if, when you face trials or difficulties of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its full effect, right, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. And I think the ending of that is so significant, right, because what do we do when we're going through something hard? We want to get out of that hard thing as fast as we possibly can. Right? We just can't wait to get through it. Right? I'm just looking to get through this week. Right? I just can't wait for, you know, I can't wait for the baby to be sleeping through the night. You know? right? We're just kind of wishing ahead for whatever that hard thing is to be over. Right? But what does Scripture say? Let endurance 
Right? Let the, the, the endurance that comes from the testing of your faith, let it have its full effect. Meaning we can sit in it, even as uncomfortable as it might be, because we know it's serving a greater purpose, one that is growing us. And again, this is not something that we would argue with with anything else, yet for some reason we do it with our faith and with our walk with Jesus. For example, if, if you're in here and you like to work out, right? I, I can't relate with you, um, but I know there are people like you, right? That you like to work out. How's that work? Right? You, you, you do certain movements, whatever, however you work out, I don't know. Um, and what does it do? It tears down your muscles, right? If you're doing curls, right? It literally tears the fibers in your bicep muscles, which tells your body, I need to build those back and not just the same way, because if I do it the same way and the body does the same thing it did last time, it's going to tear them again. So I need to build them back a little bit stronger. So if it does the same thing, it's not going to hurt the body again, right? And we willingly do that. Why? Because we want the the greater outcome, right? We want to be stronger or faster or better conditioned or whatever reason it is that we're working out, right? Or with anything else in life, right? If you're working hard in your job, if you want to be a, a good athlete or, or, or whatever it is, what do you do? You practice, you put in work, and sometimes it's hard and difficult, but you do it anyway. Why? Because there's the motivation, right, that you are going to be better, a more complete athlete, a more complete in, in your health, more complete and and full in your job, whatever it is you might be working towards. And so you do it anyway. And what do they tell you? You don't skip steps, right? You don't skip leg day if you're working out, right? You don't skip trainings if you're studying or you don't skip school if you're studying for something that you want to work really hard to do, right? You, 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 You let it have its full effect, right? So we can be mature and complete. And that is what difficulties and trials, Scripture says, do for us. They allow us to become mature and complete, not lacking anything. And lastly, and and these last three are all kind of tied together, um, but the last thing, when the Bible talks about bad things, not only do we've got to keep in mind that anything is deserved. Anything we get, it's deserved, right? And and it's a reminder for Christians of foreshadowing of what we've avoided, um, and and it refines us. Um, But the other thing it does is it makes a way for us to communicate God's glory to the lost. God has chosen to use uh, suffering um, by only his omnipotent knowledge. Um, He has chosen to use suffering and trials and difficulties to communicate his glory to people that don't know his glory. And so we can find joy in going through bad things because we know that God wants to use the way we walk through, right? The joy that we have, even though we go through it, as a testimony of His goodness, right? And our badness, ultimately, so that other people might come to know Jesus. Romans 8.28, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God and those who have been called according to His purposes. What is that good? Right? What is that good? I think a lot of people question that, right? Like, it's an encouraging verse, right? God works all things, right? And we usually use that to refer to when we're going through hard things, right? Don't worry. God works all things for the good of those who love him. And call according to his purpose. Well, what is his purpose? His purpose is that all people of all nations would know him. And so the good thing isn't necessarily that the bad's just going to turn out just the way you want it, right? Or the trial's going to end soon if you just stick it out, right? It might never, right? Paul, Paul had a suffering. He asked God to take away from him, and God said No. And what did he say? My grace is sufficient for my power is made perfect in weakness. Right? Meaning that, 
that the power displayed in Paul through Paul's weakness, through his suffering, was the very thing he was going to use to lead people to know who he was. And so the good that we can know is always there in the bad things, is that God is going to use it in one way or another to bring his name glory, whether that is like an immediate, direct impact on someone's salvation, or whether it's a seed planted only to be, uh, only to be harvested 10 years down the road, all of it is worked together for the good of those who love him, according to his purposes, not our purposes. Let me give this last illustration to kind of sum up all the bad things that we're talking about. Um, I've got two little ones, as a lot of you guys know. One-year-old, three, three months old today uh, is the other one, and she just got her two-month shots. Um, and if you're a parent, I know you know the, the dreaded trip to give your um, child a shot because you know they're not going to like it. Uh, I think my wife has strategically scheduled the ones that I take them as the ones where they need their shots. Um, and the thing is, you're making them do something that they think is entirely bad, right? There's nothing in their infant brain or child brain that could possibly comprehend how the pain they experience could in any way at all be good, right? Yeah, we make them go through it anyway. And even though we know that it serves a good purpose in their life, it's going to offer them protection, right? It's going to offer them uh, just better health, right? Whatever the shot is, I suppose. Um, but we can't even, they, they couldn't possibly understand, right? Especially my three month old, she couldn't possibly understand. There's no way I could dumb it down to her level to where she could be like, okay, you know what? I'm going to enjoy this shot because I know you have my best interest in mind, right? And here's the thing, I think that when we question why God would choose to allow the bad things to happen that he does, and I'm talking bad things, right? I don't want to minimize bad. I know some of you in here personally that have battled cancer. I know some of you personally that have lost loved ones in really difficult ways. Um, and I don't want to minimize that at all. Um, but I do want to encourage you, I want to encourage all of us, that when we question that, we're like an infant crying out to God, God, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? When perhaps there's no way he could possibly communicate it in a way that we could understand because his ways are so much higher, Scripture says, than our ways. So what do we ask our, our kids to do? Emmy, just trust Daddy. You just got to get this shot and then it's going to be okay. Right? Or just trust me. Right? Yet for some reason... We don't want to afford, the God, afford God the same trust, the same faith that we place in him. And so when we ask this question, I want to go ahead and invite the worship team to come back up as we get ready to close. Um, again, it boils down, the answer is simple. Right? Why, and again, if someone asks you as a Christian, you know, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? The best answer is not just to say he doesn't. Right? Even though that's the right answer, um, and that's why I tried to lay it out the way we did, that one, know that God does not allow bad things to happen to good people, primarily because there are no good people. Um, but secondarily, anything bad that does happen, one, it's deserved, because we have, we have, infinitely, we have infinitely sinned and rebelled against God, infinitely worse than anything that he could extend back to us. Um, 
But then also, those bad things that we experience, even the ones that aren't just punishment for, for doing things, even if we've been covered by the grace and blood of Jesus, and we're living that out, He may be using that to, one, refine us, two, give us appreciation of what we've been saved from, a foreshadowing of what's to come for some people, and ultimately just believe and trust that He might be using that to reach the people around us. And so instead of, in, in kind of a high horse way, think that our goodness has any correlation with the things that happen to us, circumstantially, people around us, even within our own selves, the things we struggle with, um, is, is just so, so arrogant towards the God that knows all things. And so we put ourselves in a position of kind of playing God to think that we could possibly know better. So instead, let the practical implications of today be this. One, um, that, we would, that we would be humbled to know that we have sinned against the God of the universe. And it's not a three miles out over the speed limit, look the other way kind of sin. It is a total, complete betrayal of a God who loved us and created us to, to live with him in rebellion from him. And so know that there's no high horse for us to get on. That we are awful and wretched and sinful. One of the first things Matt and I taught Emmy was we'll say, Emmy, what are you? And she'll say, I'm a sinner. And it sounds, it can sound bad or mean. She's now getting confused with how old are you? And she'll say sinner. <laughs> the thing is, we want her to know that, that we all do bad things. And the reality is that should lead us to a place of crying out to the one that has done no bad things and saying, God, I can do nothing on my own. Only you who made me can produce any good within me. And so I'll choose to surrender to you. And luckily, he made a way for us to do that through the person of Jesus. And so if you're in here and you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, or you've wrestled with this question and think, how can God possibly do that? It's because we have infinitely wronged him. And so until we surrender our life to his lordship and the grace that he extends to us, there's no hope. And again, not that you're just magically, your life's going to be good afterwards. But we can trust that in all the bad that happens in this world, it's serving his purpose of growing us, of creating an eager expectation of longing for the day we get to be with him and no longer suffering, no more sin and tears and pain, but just pure joy face to face with Jesus, crying out, glory to God in the highest. And so if, that, if that's you, if you've never made that decision, I pray that you would make it today. Because even though you're not a good person, <laughs> Jesus has made a way anyway, because he is a good person. And he lived a good person life for us that we might have hope for eternity. And so you have that hope this morning. And so if that's you, uh, we're going to sing in just a moment. I'm going to be at the front. I, I invite you to respond. Um, and then secondly, if you are a Christian, uh, let this motivate us to 
to live totally indebted to him. One of the, the points that we talked about in the lock-in last night was walking worthy, right? Because and what I was talking to guys about is that we weren't worthy on the front end, right? God did not send Jesus because we were worthy of dying for, right? We weren't, we were totally unworthy, which is what makes what he did so incredible. But what the scripture's saying is that because he did that, now we can seek to walk worthy on the back end, which he enables us to do. So even though we've been bad, even though we continue to do bad, even though we continue to struggle with bad, um, we seek with everything in us to live according to the one that is good. So if that's you, whatever that looks like for you, we invite you to respond as well. The altar is open if you need to lay down some things. Um, and lastly, if you would like to do this a part of a particular group of believers, and you're not already a part of a local church, um, we would love to invite you to join our local church. Because the truth is, we need help in this. Um, we need sometimes people to humble us and remind us of how bad we are. Um, sometimes we need people to remind us that, that God is the one that is good, and we can surrender in Him. Sometimes we need people to remind us that we're going through bad things, and we need to let it have its full effect. Right? because God is trying to grow us in a powerful way. Um, sometimes we need people to remind us that, that we need to remain joyful because it's going to be a testimony to lost people that God has placed around us. And so if you don't have community, um, we would love to be that for you. Um, so again, if that's you, I invite you to respond. If you'd like to join the church, uh, we'll walk you through what, what all that means. Um, but regardless of what you're here for, why you're here, whether it's a lack-in or... Uh, whatever other reason, um, know that you're invited to respond. We all must respond to God's word. Um, I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. Know that you're invited.